I love it when, uh, when Jesus causes traffic jams in East Cobb. Uh, and so last night, the, uh, we literally were backed up the traffic both sides here on Holt Road. It was kind of crazy. And there were so many people uh, out at, at Trucker Tree. How, how many of you participated, made a trunk, were here volunteering? Raise those hands really high. Give it up for these folks. Um, well done, everybody. It was, I, I love days like this where we get to just genuinely bless the community. And there were 400 people that don't attend our church, may not attend any church, that were here and were kind of walking around being loved on and cared for by our church. And uh, it was a really beautiful day. And so want to encourage you, when we do things like that, we need your help. Right? We, we were a little short on cars last night, and we needed about 10 or 15 more. Uh, and so we need everybody to step up, and we need everybody to be hosts in those moments. And so when we ask for those things, please step up and help. There was a great day, awesome stuff. Um, but I want to continue to grow these things, get them better. I want people to feel like, man, this trunk or treat just keeps getting better every year, uh, and I want to keep coming. Uh, I did talk to a family that said this is our fourth trunk or treat tonight. Um, they were doing it, like they were getting the candy. They were very serious about recognizing every church in the Atlanta area and knocking it out. And that leads us to what we're talking about today. So we're in a series where we're talking about entrusted and we're having a conversation about work and money. And, and I've said this at the start of everyone, I'll say it even shorter this time. We are not in a money crisis in the church. I'm not asking you for money. I'm not trying to get a new boat or raise my salary or any of those things. I'm talking about money because Jesus talks about money. We're talking about work because Jesus talks about work. Uh, over 60% of the parables are dedicated to money and work and all of those things. And so today, speaking of the four trunk or treats in one night, we're talking about abundance versus scarcity. And there's nowhere else where that was more exhibited by children last night. So my, my wife and I, we made a trunk. We were pirates. Uh, she was the captain. I was the cabin boy. Uh, my son was a parrot. Uh, and my daughter was a pirate as well, and so we kind of created our trunk to look like a boat, and we sat out there, and when kids first started coming, I just kind of held out the, like, I, I don't know what I'm, I'm, I'm not a professional trunk or treat uh, host, and so I would just hold out the candy, and, and there were some kids that you would see, they had, they had a full abundance mentality. They were like, I'm taking one, and I trust that the Lord is going to provide all the candy that I need tonight. There were other children that they were like double fisting in my bug. And Sarah was like, we can't do this. We're going to run out of candy. And she was right. We did run out of candy. Uh, four bags or three bags of, of 150, we ran out. Uh, and, and so she was like, you got to just give one to every kid. And, and the hardest thing for me all night was to give one to the really cute kids. You know what I'm saying? Like there's some kids where you're like, oh, yeah, you probably just deserve one. You didn't even dress up, Right. There's other kids, it was like, this kid is the cutest thing. I, I want to give him all my candy. Like, uh, I, that was difficult for me. So, that, so it, was a, it, was a, it was an experience of uh, abundance and scarcity. Here, here's our reality. There's two different ma mentalities we can take into our daily life. The first is, I'm about to run out, and I have to fight for more. And the second is, there's plenty more where that came from, and I can't wait to see how God provides. That affects the way that we think about our work and our money. It affects the way that we're generous with our time and our resources. It affects the way we view our everyday life. It affects our levels of anxiety and fear. It affects every area of our life because one of those mentalities limits our impact and one increases our capacity. One of those creates fear and doubt and selfishness and one creates generosity, grace, 
mercy, and fruits of the Spirit, a lot of this comes down to our mindset. And all of this was illustrated in such a crazy way over the last few years as our country experienced the, like COVID. Like there was never a time in my lifetime where I experienced abundance mentality and scarcity mentality side by side over and over again as we went through the last few years. It, it felt like COVID increased our scarcity mentality. It felt like there was this fear of there's not enough jobs, there's not enough money, there's not enough resources, there's not enough medicine, there's a crash in the market that's coming, there's not enough good people who believe the things that I believe. And in the middle of COVID, as a pastor, I experienced both of those mentalities. We had people who would call the church and say, listen, I know there's people that are hurting right now, how can I give more? I want to be generous right now. I want to give more. How do I step up my generosity? They had an abundance mentality. Even when the circumstances around them were like, oh, there's scarcity, there's fear, they had this abundance mentality of like, I, I want to be more generous. I trust that when I'm generous, God does something. And I see com with compassion people that are hurting around me and I want to give more. And there were others who saw this as a moment to, to, to like, cuddle in tight and, and store up everything and be fearful and afraid and gather up everything and say, I got to take care of this and protect myself in this moment. One asks, what if there's not enough? And the other asks, what if this is the moment that God wants to break through? And so I, I know this is silly, and this is the first time I've ever used toilet paper as an example. Um, but this was a perfect example of our craziness, right here. There was the largest run on toilet paper in the history of our country during a respiratory disease. <laughs> like, I want to be clear about this, right? Like, it, it wasn't an intestinal thing, everyone, right? <laughs> I, I, don't know, I don't think I need to go into too much depth. There wasn't a stomach problem, right? Here's what happened. Somebody somewhere, I'm guessing on some news channel, because their goal is to drive fear, because fear drives ratings. Someone on a news channel said, there's a supply chain that's broken. There's not enough toilet paper. It's actually a brilliant marketing strategy if you're Charmin, right? Something's happening here. We're going to run out. And people lost their minds. And everyone ran, like, I believe this. I believe there's going to be historians hundreds of years from now who are going to look back on the COVID crisis that happened in America, and there's going to be a guy doing research, and he's like, I cannot figure out why they bought toilet paper. <laughs> so if you find this sermon audio, I want you to know it's because of scarcity. It's because there was this moment where everybody thought, there's not enough we're not going to be able to do some things that we need to do with this, and there's not enough, and so we have to go. And so there were people, I, I, like, I went to the grocery, there was a woman who had two grocery carts full of toilet paper, pushing them through, and, the, and I, re, I remember clearly hearing the lady at the counter saying, I'm not sure you're allowed to do this. And the stores had to put up signs that said, limit Two, I don't, I don't know what your grocery did. Mine was like two. If you can buy two things of toilet paper. Like that's it. There's a limit to all of those things. But someone somewhere created a scarcity mentality, created a fear that was rooted in the question, what if there's not enough and our entire nation broke down? 
This is not the only area of our nation where we see this, but it is a perfect example of what scarcity does to us. It drives us to fear. It drives us to hoarding. It drives us to gathering. It drives us to a lack of generosity and a selfishness. And, and here's what I want you to know. I could walk through the entire portion of scripture. I could walk through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. In fact, as I was researching this week, I did a ton of it, and I could have preached a four-hour sermon on this because we could have walked through the all of scripture and shown that at the beginning, when, when everything was created, at the beginning of time, there was abundance. God created the world, and it was good. Adam and Eve walked with him. They had all of their needs met. They were happy. They knew God. They walked with him, and everything was good. Genesis starts, the Bible starts with a liturgy of abundance. It's a song of praise for God's generosity. It tells us how the world was brought from chaos into order, and it keeps saying it is good, it is good, it is good, it is very good. There's zero questions about whether there's enough. There's zero fear about toilet paper running out. There's zero worries about not having enough food. There's zero concerns. Adam and Eve had everything they needed to flourish. And this is the beginning of Genesis. The Psalms are filled with pictures and reminders that God is our protector, that God is our provider, that God is bigger than anything that we know or understand, and that we can trust him because he's good. It's filled with language like, you are my shelter, you are my provider, I run to you, you give me, you look at me, you know me. There's these reminders that in a world of scarcity, there is a provider. In a world where there is fear, there is a protector. In a world where there is worry, there is a place to take that anxiety and those fears. Psalms 104, the entire psalm is a picture of God as this provider. It says in verse 10, you make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man and oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen his heart. Everything in all of the Psalms reminds us of this. Everything is from him and he is good and we can trust him. Jesus talks about if the birds trust him, if the flowers trust him, we can trust him. He's good, and he's a provider, and he's a protector. And the Bible continues to remind us over and over and over again that even when the resources are turned off, there is a source. That even when it feels like there is scarcity, there actually is abundance. Abundance is everywhere. And then fast forward to the end of Genesis. And the people went from there is enough, and it is good, to what if there isn't enough? Sin entered the world. And as sin entered into the world, we began to hoard and fight for our resources. And rather than us all believing there's enough to go around, we started to think, what if I need to gather tomorrow's bread now? What if I don't just need today's manna? What if I need tomorrow's bread? And what if I need the day after that? And we started hoarding and gathering and building bigger barns and creating all of these ways where we could have everything that we want. Fast forward to Genesis chapter 47 where there is an oppressor and his name is Pharaoh. 
And Pharaoh comes on the scene, and there's a famine in the land. The resource is turned off. Scarcity is here. There is a real lack in the world in this moment. And there is this fear that there's not enough good things to go around. And so Pharaoh believes, I have to have it all. Pharaoh sees famine as an opportunity. And not an opportunity to bless, not an opportunity to be generous, not an opportunity to give more as an opportunity to gain wealth, as an opportunity to take from somebody else, as an opportunity to gather what he possibly can so that he can take advantage of those who are less fortunate than him. And there are pharaohs in this world, lots of them. And so the resource is turned off, famine actually comes, and when the crops fail and the peasants run out of food, they come to Joseph. And on behalf of Pharaoh, Joseph says, all right, what's your collateral? And in year one of the famine, their collateral is, uh, is their crops. I'm going to give up our crops. We're going to give up whatever. It's an agrarian culture, right? Everything is based on agriculture. And so we're going to give up what we've grown. We planted a seed. We believed it would sprout. Food came up from that. We're going to give you whatever we have. It's, li- it's a little bit, but we're going to give you what we have so that we can get more. They give their crops and they give their land. We're going to give up the land in which we farm the crops. And so next, the second year, not only is there a famine, but they don't have land and they don't have this opportunity anymore. And so what do they give up in the second year? They give up their cattle. They give up their animals. They give up all their tools. They give up all the things that were used to farm. And so by the time they get to year three, they say, what's your collateral? And they say, we don't have any collateral. And they become the collateral. And the people of God become slaves to an oppressive pharaoh. They become slaves to this mentality that there is not enough. And I would ask us, does our life look more like Genesis 1 or like Genesis 47? Do we possess the world, or does the world possess us? Do we own things, or do things own us? Do we actually trust that there is abundance, and there is fruit, and there is flourishing, and there is goodness, and it's available to us? Benton did an amazing job last week teaching on work, and I love the fact that he pointed out in the Guinness Book of World Records This is like a real thing. They've actually said that Monday has been declared the worst day of the week. (laughs) Like there's a record, I guess, for the worst days in the best. I'm guessing Friday is the best day. I don't know if Guinness has done that work yet, but maybe they'll get to it. Um, But he said that that we hate our work. Like we, we hate going to work. There's all this stuff that we hate, but we're enslaved to it. We keep going back over and over and over again to fruitless places and fruitless beliefs, believing that there's something good there when we just cannot find it and cannot flourish. Walter Brueggemann, who is my favorite Old Testament writer, and uh, some people have like sports heroes. I have like old theologian heroes. He's like a hero of mine. He's absolutely brilliant. He says this, we who are now the richest nation are today's main coveters. We never feel that we have enough. We have to have more and more, and there is an insatiable desire that is destroying us. Whether we are liberal or conservative Christians, we must confess that the central problem of our lives is that we are torn apart by the conflict between our attraction to the good news of abundance and the power of our fear in scarcity, a belief that makes us greedy, mean, and unneighborly. We spend our lives trying to sort out that ambiguity. And the conflict between the narratives of abundance and scarcity is now the defining problem confronting the future of the church. Will we be a people who believe in abundance 
and trust that God is good and that he's working and that we can be generous? Or will we be a people who are captured by fear? Who are afraid of our neighbors? Who are afraid of giving up our time, giving up our resources, giving up anything because there is this fear that I have to keep more. Uh, nowhere is this anxiety more present than in the world of youth sports. How many of you have a kid that has played or is playing youth sports? How many of you do that with parents who are convinced their child is going to be playing in the NBA next year? Like, it's just there. There's this fear. Like, uh, my daughter is playing rec soccer right now. This is not a traveling team. It's not a all-star team. It is a rec. It is you pay money and you get on the team. It is not you have to try out for the team and make it. It is uh, if you're willing to pay your hundred bucks or however much it costs, you are on the team. Like there is no competitiveness on it at all. Um, the girls are great. Some of them are better than others. Um, some of them are just playing for fun. Some of them, it's the first time they've ever played. Some of them have been playing forever. And the first time we got there, we shake hands with some of the parents and team members that are there. And, and the woman says to us, well, who's your daughter's trainer? <laughs> and we're like, oh, she just, we just play soccer. We, she, she's actually never practiced in her life. Like, if I'm going to be really honest, she has never gone in the yard with a soccer ball and said, I want to get better. Uh, she shows up to practice once a week in her rec soccer team, and that's our improvement plan at this point. Uh, and she's like, well, what traveling team does she play on? And I was like, well, she travels with this team. Um, sometimes we drive like 15 minutes to get to these games, and that feels like a lot to us right now. Uh, she's got a game after church today. It's feeling a little overwhelming for Sarah and I in this moment. We're measuring whether it's worth it <laughs> at this point. Uh, and, and, and there was this, there's this whole conversation, the same thing happened with my older son, like there's this whole conversation around like if you're not training them, if you're not getting them in the right team at the right time, these six-year-olds are going to ruin their chance of making it to the NBA. Like I love my children, but they have my genes. They're, they're not playing in the NBA. Like they just don't, they're not... I'm, I'm not LeBron. Uh, and th so all the discussions, I, I can remember when Caden was playing basketball and, and people started giving us like the list of things that he has to do. Well, he's got to get on, a, on, a Nike, on the Nike circuit or on the Adidas circuit. He can't just play on a traveling team. He's got to play on one of the shoe traveling teams because that's where the college coaches are. And if you want to do that, you got to pay this much and you got to, and all of a sudden your life is completely consumed by youth sports and these parents are frantic and afraid and fearful that what if there's not enough and what if I'm the one who limits my kids' chances we could do the same with academics. We could do the same with schools. We could go over these things over and over again. But can you hear the fear? There's not enough. There's not enough. There's not enough. And these parents hate it. They hate the travel. They hate the cost. They hate the coaches. They hate the referees. They hate the other parents. They hate everything that's happening. Yet they are more putting out a second mortgage so they can get their team, their kid, on the Adidas circuit. Like, this is the mentality. It's this fear mentality. I don't know about you guys. I'm really excited about all the political ads we've been watching for the last three months. I just get really excited. I was hoping to hear more about Herschel Walker these days. 
and, and Raphael Warnock. Like, I just want to know all the terrible things they've done. I, I don't care what your political persuasion is, but you have to understand that everything that we hear about politics is based on fear and scarcity. It's based on this fear that if this person gets elected, our life ends. If this person gets into office, everything is falling apart. If this person gets elected, then God no longer sits on the throne, but that person does. So be very afraid. I think every political commercial should not end like, my name is whatever and I approve this message. It should end with, be very afraid. <laughs> right? Be very afraid, right? That should be the tagline. I think that's what people should run. I actually think if we're going to be honest about people's taglines for their campaigns, more of them are be very afraid than they are actually anything that they believe in or want to do as a politician. Here's what I want to say to you. We're entering into election season, and I know this one is minor. The one that's coming is going to be complete crazy town again for our church. And I want to say this very, very clearly. Jesus is the one that we worship, not America, not a politician, and not an elected official. And we are not, we are not going to lose relationships with friends and family and people in this church because we're voting differently. Does everybody hear me? We're not going to post idiotic things on social media to alienate all of our friends and family. Thanksgiving's coming up. Don't be that person, right? Just eat a meal with your family and love them. Right? Don't talk about who they're voting for. Just care for them. Eat the gravy. Eat the stuffing. Pray and have a good time. <laughs> Everywhere we look, we can see this model of abundance and scarcity. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 14. I, I, I want to share with you one of my favorite passages and one of my favorite pictures of what Jesus has to say about our scarcity. And it's the feeding of the 5,000. It's a story that we've all heard since we were little kids, if you grew up in the church, but I think it's actually a beautiful picture of who Jesus is and what he invites us into. Matthew chapter 14, verse 13, it says, now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew there from a boat to a desolate place by himself. And when the crowds heard this, they followed him on foot from the towns. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and he healed they're sick. So, so, so the reality here is, here's what's happening. Jesus has been pouring himself out in ministry. Jesus, who is God made flesh, models for us the relationship between a son and a father, between a human and God, better than anyone else models it. And Jesus, who actually was fully God and fully human and had power and authority from heaven, still understood that he needed to withdraw and get with the Father to be reminded of who he is, what he's called to do, and where his place is. Here's what I want us to understand. Scarcity will always creep in when we're not connected to the Father. The more disattached we are to the vine or to the Father, that's when scarcity starts to creep in because we, stop, we start forgetting that he's good. We start forgetting that he's trustworthy. We start forgetting that he's going to take care of us. And so Jesus models this. Jesus gets away. He leaves the crowds and he goes and he gets quiet with his father. He leaves and separates himself and gets with God and says, God, I need you to remind me why I'm here. I need you to remind me who you are. I need you to remind me why I'm doing the work that I'm doing. I need all of these reminders over and over and over again. And here he's withdrawing. And as he's withdrawing, the crowds are chasing him. Like, I know what this feels like as a pastor sometimes. 
Like there's a long week and you're exhausted and you're tired and you've reached the end of a long week and you're just worn out and you get a call at nine o'clock that says the worship leader's sick tomorrow. That might have happened last night. Thank Jesus for Sam who stepped up today. Give it up for Sam. Um, I, like, there are these moments when you just feel, I don't know if you've reached that point where you're just like, ah, I'm tired, I'm worn out. And the crowd keeps following you. And there's still somebody else that needs you. And there's still something else that needs to happen. And I love the language there. Can we go back to that verse? It says, Jesus looked at them and he did what? He had compassion. There was this compassion in his posture. There was this moment that even in a moment of fear where there wasn't enough, even in a moment of exhaustion, even in a moment of fatigue, his compassion led him to action. And I wonder how often when we get so tired and thin and worn out and exhausted that that's when we start believing in scarcity. That that's when we start getting afraid, that that's when we start to get to anxious. But, but one, I wonder if we just kind of start looking around with compassion. Jesus, I want to see the world the way that you see it. I want to see these people the way that you see them. I want to understand with your heart. I want to hear with your ears. I want to listen the way that you listen. I want to love the way that you love. I want your heart for the world. That compassion changes our mentality over and over and over again. Verse 15, it says, now when it was the evening, the disciples came to him. Listen to the disciples' language. I love the disciples. They're a mess. This is a desolate place. It really isn't. But that is what they say, right? It's actually a beautiful place where they were at this time. It's gorgeous. This is a desolate place. The day is over. Send the crowds away to go to the village and buy food for themselves. Is this abundance language or scarcity language? Scarcity, right? Have you ever been in that place where you're at the end of your week and you're like, this is a desolate place. <laughs> There's no food on the table. Our kids are fighting for scraps. You went out to lunch three times this week. You bought Starbucks coffee four times this week. Like, you are not in a desolate place. <laughs> this is a desolate place. We're so tired, Jesus. We're worn out, Jesus. And here's what I want us to know. Even when we reach the end of ourselves, there's always more in God. That even when we reach the end and like, I just, I can't do it. I, I don't have enough. There's always more in him. And I, there are times, guys, as a pastor, I've, I've been preaching on Sunday mornings for 27 years. And there are times when I come to this spot here, and man, I've got a family-sized meal with all the fixings and all the goodness, and I got lots to say, and I can preach for three hours. And there's times when I have two loaves and a fish. And every time I say to Jesus, all right, Lord, this is a pretty crappy sermon. <laughs> Will you multiply it? Will you do something with it? And over and over again, he's good. This is what we do. His actions aren't based on our possessions, that they're based on his. They're not based on our skills and giftedness. They're based on his gifting that he gives to us. They're not based on my resources, but they're based on his resources. They aren't based on Genesis chapter 47 where everything is running out. They're based on Genesis chapter 1 where he speaks and he breathes and he says and it comes to pass. 
Verse 16, but Jesus said to them, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. I love that. And they said to him, we only have five loaves and two fish. I love the disciples. Like, I just love their response. I also love Jesus' posture in this. Jesus is training his disciples to be like him. He's teaching them to do what he does. That's his job. Because Jesus understands he has to create a movement of people who live the same way that he lives, who knows the Father the same way that he knows the Father. And so he's starting with this small group of people who he's training. And it's beautiful if you read the whole Bible, if you get into Acts and you start covering up the names of who's doing the stuff, you would think that Jesus is still doing all of this when it's actually the disciples who are doing the miracles. It's the disciples who are, one, who are the ones who have changed and transformed and become every, from everyday ordinary people who are afraid and don't know how to live in their authority and power and in the resources that have been given to them to, to people who stand in the power of the Holy Spirit and do amazing things. And so Jesus says, you feed them. And I can imagine the sideways looks they're giving each other. Like we didn't come up with a catering plan for this event, Jesus. We don't have the box Chick-fil-A lunch with the really good sandwiches and the cookie and the chips. Like, we did not order that. There's no one right here that we can just call up and get a sandwich from. And here's what I want us to know. Abundance always asks the question, what do you have? And scarcity always dwells on what we lack. When we have an abundance mentality, it doesn't, we don't have to have everything. Whatever we bring, we trust is going to be multiplied. When we have a scarcity mentality, we're looking at it and we're saying, I don't have enough. When we have an abundance mentality, we're saying, this is all I have, but my God is the God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. My God is the God who speaks the world into existence. My God is the God who can turn water into wine, who can turn two fish and five loaves into something amazing. My God is the God who does miracles, and so I'm going to bring whatever I have, and I'm going to trust that he's going to multiply it. Verse 18, this is the most pivotal point in the entire passage, and if you hear nothing else from me, hear this. And he said to them, bring them here to me. This is it. We've been saying it for the last few weeks over and over again. God is the owner, and we are the managers. And so what we do with what we have is we surrender it back to him. We do this in every area of our life and Jesus takes what we have, and he does what he wants. We bring him our resources. We're generous with what we have. We give him our last meal. We give him our tiny little offerings when we feel like they're not enough, and he does amazing things. Sometimes we focus more on our problems than we do on the solution, even when the solution is standing right in front of us. We're counting sandwiches, and the God of the universe is standing beside us. So here's my question. What are you counting right now when Jesus is in the room? What's the thing that you're saying, there's just not enough? I'm just afraid. I'm just a little scared, and Jesus is standing right beside you. The disciples knew Jesus they had seen Jesus. This wasn't the first miracle that Jesus had done. They had seen him do this over and over and over again. They were in the room when he said, bring me the water. They were at the wedding 
when he took a little bit of water and turned it into wine. They had been in all of these moments. They had seen the Father come down from heaven. The very next verse, they see him walk on water, right? Over and over and over again, they had seen God be their protector and provider. They had been with Jesus. They had seen him work, but there still was this belief, there's not enough. Verse 19, it says, Then they ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven. He said a blessing, and then he broke the loaves, and he gave them to the disciples, and the disciple gave them to the crowds. What does this sound like? Jesus took the bread, and he broke it. Sounds like the Last Supper. Can, can you, like, here's, here's my picture of, of if, if I'm a disciple... And I have walked with Jesus. I've seen Jesus take these loaves and break them before. And I'm there at the Last Supper. I'm there in the upper room, and I see him doing this again. I am completely reminded that Jesus is up to something here. That Jesus is once again doing the thing he does, which is taking the small amounts of bread and multiplying. This is communion. This is the Eucharist. This is the Last Supper. And even in this moment, even in the moment of the Last Supper, even in the moment when Jesus is about to give his entire life, he's saying, I'm going to do it again, and I want you to know that I believe in God so much that I'm not just willing to give him my resources. I'm not just willing to give him my my skills and my talents. I'm not just willing to give him my time. I will give him my very life to prove to you that you can trust him. I will break the bread. I will break my body, and again and again and again, I will prove to you that our Father is a Father of abundance. Brueggemann says this. He said, the feeding of the multitudes recorded is an example of a new world coming into being through God. When the disciples, charged with feeding the hungry crowd, found a child with five loaves and two fishes, Jesus took, blessed, broke, and gave the bread. These are the four decisive verbs of every sacramental existence. Jesus conducted a communion, a gratitude. He demonstrated that the world is filled with abundance and freighted with generosity. If bread is broken and shared, then there's enough for all. Jesus is engaged in the sacramental, subversive reordering of public reality. And when people forget that Jesus is the bread of the world, they start eating the junk food, the food of the Pharisees, the food of Herod, the bread of moralism and of power. And too often, the church forgets that the true bread is here, and they're tempted by junk food. Our faith is not about spiritual matters. It's about the transformation of the world. And the closer we stay to Jesus, the more we bring the new economy of of abundance into the world. The disciples often don't get what Jesus is about because they keep trying to fit him into their old patterns. And to do so is to make him innocuous, irrelevant, and boring. Every single day, we are the disciples of Jesus, and we have the choice Are we going to bring him what we have and lay it at his feet and trust that he's abundant? Or are we going to withhold it for ourselves? And God wants to say to us, there is nothing that I withhold from you. And so there's nothing that I want you to withhold from me. I have given you everything, even my life. This is how God does his miracles. He does it with ordinary materials. Like we bring what we have and he takes it and he breaks it and he distributes it and somehow it's enough. Verse 20, just the wrap up, it says they all ate and they were all satisfied. They took up the 12 baskets full of broken pieces left over 
And those who ate were 5,000 men besides the women and children. God's abundance isn't dependent on our faith, but it often follows our faith. It's not dependent on our faith. God is abundant whether we have faith for it or not. But I do see there's this pattern in Scripture where when we step out in faith, that's when God moves. In the story of the water to wine, Mary says, do whatever he says. And that's when the miracle happens. In the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus says, bring me whatever you've got. And that's when the miracle happens. When the people of God step into the Jordan River and they put their feet in, that's when the river stops. It's these moments where we step up. When Elijah says to the widow, get me a sandwich, and she makes the sandwich, that's when God blesses. And so today, as we move into a time of communion, uh, I just want us to start thinking about what we possess and what possesses us. Is there an area of our life right now where God is asking us to bring what we have and give it generously? And, And so when we take communion every single week, we take this time, there are tables set out all throughout the room with the juice and the bread. And as we do that, what we do is we ask for a moment of reflection. So every week I ask a question and I say, hey, I want you to take the bread and I want you to take the juice and I want you to sit with Jesus and I want you to ask him a question. And here's what we believe. We believe that God's still speaking. I've talked to you about the logos, the word of God for the last 30 minutes. But we believe that there is the whisper of God, there is the rima of God that he is generous with and that he wants to give to you. One of our core values is that we want to hear the whisper of Jesus and that we trust that he's whispering and that he's moving. And so here's what I know as a preacher. I know that there's work that I can do and then there's work that only the Holy Spirit can do. And so our pattern as a church, and I don't know if it's the right one or the wrong one or it's just what we do, is that every week we take a moment and we remember who Jesus is and what he's done And we simply ask him, Jesus, what am I supposed to do with this? The two questions that every disciple asks is, what what is God saying to me and what am I going to do about it? And we just decide what we're going to do about those things. And so here's your question for today. I just want you to ask, where in my life am I living with scarcity? And where are you inviting me to abundance? And I want you to be humble enough to listen. Pay attention to what pops in your head. Pay attention to what stirs up in your mind. And if you hear something, then ask Jesus, what do I do about it? If I've been living in scarcity, if I've been living in fear, if I've been living in anxiety, if I've been living in this place of selfishness and hoarding, like what's the response to that? And and I'll break it to you, it's always generosity. It's always giving, it's always serving, it's always trusting. It's this idea that we've been entrusted with what we have, but everything we have is his. And so I can steward it and I can care for it, but I trust that he's generous and he's going to give more. So I'm going to pray and we're just going to open up some space. The band's going to just play quietly for a little bit. And I do just want to ask you to just go to Jesus and just ask him, Lord, where are you inviting me to abundance? Where am I living in scarcity? So Heavenly Father, I pray that you would move right now. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would do the work that I can't do in this space. I pray that you would convict hearts. 
Lord, you know the stories of every person in this room, and I don't. You know the fears and the hurts and the anxieties. Scripture says you know the hairs on our head. You know everything about us. And so I just pray, Holy Spirit, that you would have your way with us in this moment. I pray that you would move and work and breathe. I pray that you would encourage. I pray that you would challenge. I pray that you would compassionately and kindly show grace and love and mercy. And that you would powerfully and wonderfully speak things that we need to hear. And we trust that you're moving and you're working. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If this is a real challenge for you right now, if you legitimately are in a place of like, I'm in absolute scarcity and I don't know what to do. If you just need to pray about this, then our prayer team is always here on the sides. And I just want to tell you, I say this all the time. If you don't get prayed for with our prayer team, you're leaving good stuff on the table every week. Uh, like they want to serve you and bless you and love you. And so if you feel like you need to pray or find somebody, then just go find them and spend some time in prayer in this moment. And we're going to open up some space for communion and prayer.